Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Steven. And we're going to be talking about the 1955 film, Pather Panchali, directed by Satyajit Rai. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about one movie they've watched recently that they want to talk about here. Alicia? I finally watched Last Night in Soho this week, the Edgar Wright film that came out I don't remember if it was last year or earlier this year. I think it was last year. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was like right up my alley, you know, murder mystery, supernatural elements, <laughs> London. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And um, it, I liked it better than uh, his last one that I saw, The World's End, mm-hmm. which I liked. I mean, I liked the like Cornetto trilogy a lot, but I liked this one a little more. I liked that it was like female-centered. And it was sort of telling a story about the challenges women face. So, yeah, I liked that. All right. And Laura, what about you? Well, Stephen and I went to go see Nope this weekend by Jordan Peele. And I was going to let him speak to that and talk about what I think um, Nope is a direct descendant of. I saw Jaws for the first time. And um, that was awesome. And I can't believe (laughs) it took me so long to to see it it's just i don't know it's one of those like gaping holes in your in my film history past that i just never watched and it was really cool and i'm really glad i did and uh steven as laura said uh we both saw nope this last weekend and as she said in one of her facebook posts nope is dope <laughs> we both really enjoyed it. <laughs> it really was fun. It was the movie by Jordan Peele, and it, it did have a lot of uh, Jaws like influence, I believe, and and it was really different than I expected. It was much more psychological than I expected, and you know, it's a sci-fi horror movie, and it wasn't what I expected necessarily, but it was really well done, and the shots that they had like in the desert were just gorgeous. Um, and then the characters actually really worked well together. I felt like, it, and you felt like you were really rooting for them and they all had different um, appeals to them. Um, I just really liked just pretty much everything about the movie. There were some complaints about like, it was a little bit slow moving by some people who were in the movie and you weren't really, you didn't get a lot of the reveals that you should have. And then also the very first part of the movie, you weren't sure how it was going to fit together, but um, once you saw it and then you saw some other scenes in the movie and they revisited it, it made so much more sense. So, um, for anybody who's going to see it, just don't like, don't discount what happened at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good advice. And Mia. I have been on vacation this past week, so I really haven't watched like any TV or any movies. I've been reading a lot, which has been really nice, but I really want to rewatch Grease um, in light of Olivia mm-hmm. Newton-John's passing. Me I too. love her. I love Grease. It's such a good movie. Um, so maybe tomorrow night or something like that, just like settle on the couch with a big bowl of popcorn and watch that. Okay. And I was also going to talk about Nope, but since... Y'all already talked about it. I'm going to zag and say I watched, I kind of watched, mostly watched 13 Lives, the new Ron Howard film about the kids who got stuck in a cave in Thailand. Uh, yeah. I was at my yeah. parents' you mostly house. kind of watched it. My, my parents had <laughs> yeah, what does that really mean? My parents had it on, and I, I was in the room and settled in and watched most of it, but I got up and did a couple things. Other like, stuff. Yeah. But overall, I mean, it was, it was a well-made movie. Um, it was... The weirdest part of it was I was watching it with my parents on their t- new TV, which is set up weird, and it looked really bizarre to me because it looked like a British show from the 80s instead of like a feature film because of the settings on their TV, which annoyed the shit out of me. But um, anyway, it was okay. It, it's like Ron Howard is... is I, I, I was thinking this while watching the movie and then saw someone like a, a critic who, who said said it basically the same way so i don't i'm just want to cite that so it doesn't sound like i'm ripping him off but basically it's like ron howard in full clint eastwood mode um, oh that's interesting yeah mm-hmm. like he's just making a movie about a thing that happened and it's very like here it is um yeah alicia what'd you think of nope i yeah. I, I really liked nope yeah it was very good and everything you all <laughs> said pretty much you know what about who too. was your favorite in it for me michael wincott was just um he stole it for me i mean i'm i'm always gonna have a soft spot for daniel kaluuya Um, yeah i mean i thought they were all great though so it's kind of hard to pick they were yeah 
So for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out sometime this year in 2022. So we're basically trying to watch some of those movies from past polls before the new one is out. And again, this time we're talking about Pethrop and Shali. But before we get into the history and background of that movie, uh, what did each of us know uh, about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before? If not, what were you expecting, if anything? And Laura, since you picked this one, can you start us off and also remind us why you chose it? Well, I chose it because um, it's the only film by an Indian filmmaker on the list, and I thought we should watch it. And I knew I'd watched it in my 20s, and I remember really liking it, but I also remember not nothing about the film, so I wanted to revisit it. Okay. And Mia? I had not seen it before. So this movie is part of a trilogy, um, which I guess it wasn't originally intended to be part of a trilogy, and then it just kind of grew into that. Uh, But the Apu trilogy, and I had seen the second film when they showed all three of them at BAM several years ago now. Uh, Jeremiah went and sat through like nine hours of them and this is when we'd like first started dating so I was like oh yeah totally I'll come and see this like Indian black and white what movie I know nothing about like sure you know and it was the second one and you don't I guess you don't have to have seen all of them for it to make sense but I now having seen this one yeah. The little I remember of the second one, I think, would have made a lot more sense and I would have been a lot more invested in the characters, but I was just kind of like, okay, I saw it. This was a thing that happened. I'm going to like go get an ice cream now or something. Um, so, but I know obviously it's on the list and I knew Jeremiah had spoken really highly of the first one. So I went in with high expectations to this watching. Yeah. Uh, Alicia. Yeah, I really knew nothing about this other than a few comments that have been made by you guys (laughs) here and there in other recordings. I just, I knew it was an Indian film and um, I didn't, I really knew nothing about it. I saw the little blurb on HBO Max that was like a coming of age story of blah, blah, blah. That was like all I knew. (laughs) So yeah, that's it. All right. And Steven? I did not know anything about this movie coming in. I just knew the title. Um, I did go back and try to watch some trailers to the movies, which didn't really inform me much about the movie. Mm. So um, I went into this blind, like I do most of the movies that um, I haven't seen. Um, and I didn't read about it at all before we started, uh, We before I started watching it. Yeah. And for me, as Mia said, uh, I think it was like, I want to say it was 2015, because it was like right after we'd started dating, I guess. So it had to be 2015. Um, they were playing all at BAM. I'd been wanting to see these for years and they'd been kind of hard to find and there'd just been a new restoration. So that's what was playing at BAM. And they were playing all three movies in a row from the trilogy. And I don't remember, uh, you must've had plans in the morning or something and then plans after, but somehow you had that window to see that second movie, but not the, either of the other two. But yeah, I think like some plans had fallen through or something. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. You were the second choice, Jeremiah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like uh, that's the only time I'd seen this or the other two. And it was I think I've talked about this on the podcast, as maybe Alicia was alluding to earlier. But uh, it was one of the more recent times because it happens so rarely, like as you if you watch a ton of movies, um, it it kind of takes a lot for a movie to kind of enter that top echelon of like, you see something for the first time as an adult and you're like, holy shit, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like that just doesn't happen as often at a certain point in your life, I feel like unfortunately. And so when that happened with Pather Penchali, I was very excited because I I was just like, (laughs) I'd been looking forward to seeing the movie for years and it, I didn't really even know that much about it. I just knew that it was a movie that I was supposed to see. And uh, it was great. I love it. And that's my experience with it. Um, (laughs) So that is where we all stood on the film before watching it for this episode. And we'll get more into the film in just a moment. But first, let's take a break. And we're back. I'll start by reading the Criterion Collection's description of the film. 
With the release in 1955 of Satyajit Rai's debut, Panther Panchali, an eloquent and important new cinematic voice made itself heard all over the world. A depiction of rural Bengali life in a style inspired by Italian neorealism, this naturalistic but poetic evocation of a number of years in the life of a family introduces us to both little Apu and, just as essentially, the women who will help shape him. His independent older sister Durga, his harried mother, Sarbajaya, who, with her husband away, must hold the family together, and his kindly and mischievous elderly auntie, Indir. Vivid, multifaceted characters all. With resplendent photography informed by its young protagonist's perpetual sense of discovery, Pether Panchali, which won an award for Best Human Document at Khan, is an immersive cinematic experience and a film of elemental power. Again, that was from the Criterion Collection. Pather Panchali, which translates as Song of the Little Road, is based on the 1929 novel of the same name, which is the semi-autobiographical work of author Bibuti Bhushan Bandio Patiai. Satyajit Rai was a graphic designer working on illustrations for a 1944 abridged edition of the book when it was suggested to him that the story would make for a good film. A few years later, as Rai became interested in making a movie, he decided to take that suggestion. Based on his notes, drawings, and storyboards, and without a traditional script, the project began filming in 1952. Beset by lack of funding from the start, due perhaps largely to its unknown director and non-professional cast, Rai financed the film himself, but ran out of money and had to shut down production for nearly a year. Eventually, the chief minister of West Bengal was convinced to help the film by giving the production a loan. Funnily enough, the government took the title, Song of the Little Road, to mean that it was a documentary about rural infrastructure and marked the loan as being related to quote-unquote roads improvement. Encouragement from filmmakers like Jean Renoir and John Huston, along with funding from MoMA, also played parts in the project coming to fruition. When the film was initially released in India, it found an audience via word of mouth after an initially lackluster reception. Its reputation in India grew from there, and it was sent to the Cannes Film Festival in 1956, where it began to draw broader international acclaim, though not entirely universal. But its success was sure enough that there were eventually two sequels that, together with this film, form what's known as the Apu Trilogy, which follow Apu's life through adolescence and into adulthood. Pather Panchali won Best Feature Film and Best Bengali Feature Film at India's third National Film Awards. It was also honored at Cannes with the aforementioned award for Best Human Document and was nominated for or won several other critics, festival, or industry awards around the world. To give a sense of what was popular in the United States as this film was released, the top five grossing movies of 1955 in North America were Cinerama Holiday, Mr. Roberts, Battle Cry, Oklahoma, and Guys and Dolls. And the big winner at the Academy Awards for 1955 was the film Marty. As for our purposes, Pather Panchali has appeared in the top 10 of Sight and Sound's critics poll twice, once as a runner-up in 1962, and then again at number 6 in 1992. In the 2012 polling, it was ranked number 42 by critics and number 48 by directors. Okay, Laura, since this was your pick, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film and whether it met your expectations? Yeah, I, I did. I I thought it was beautifully shot and just really crisp photography and just a surprise that it was so fresh feeling and fun to watch. And, you know, obviously challenging where the story kind of meanders it gets to, but it's it's filled with a lot of light and a lot of really beautiful, fun moments as well. Right. Stephen, how about you? I hadn't heard of this movie or heard anything about it. Um, so I didn't really have much expectations walking into it, but I really, really loved it. I did see a description of this movie being kind of meandering, but I think that was part of the appeal for me. Um, I do like movies where you just sort of focus on the characters and seeing them in their daily lives. And it did really make me think of even like Bicycle Thieves or the Tokyo Story, where there is just a lot of characters that you could follow. And mm -hmm. they all felt really realized people. Even from the get-go, you sort of knew what kind of people they were, even Durga at the beginning. Um, and I just really liked watching them going about their lives, just walking around. So 
And also just the cinematography was amazing. Even though it was in black and white, it just felt really fresh and everything just felt lush to me, even though I know they were living in poverty. But even when you saw scenes where there was technology in it, it was just really a nice contrast. So I really did love it. And I I ended up watching it twice and really liked it more the second time around. That's kind of your deal with these. You always watch these twice. I'm (laughs) impressed by that. Mia, how about you? Yeah, I'm echoing what Laura and Steven said. I mean, I thought it was great. I... You know, the cinematography, the lighting, the characters. I wish I could have seen it in a movie theater. So teleport me back to 2015 and make my morning (laughs) plans fall through. Just because it was kind of meandering and it wasn't the movie. It was me. Like I just got interrupted. Like the baby was crying. So like I had to get up to deal with her and or I would get distracted by something. And, you know, I just... I wish I could have just sat down and watched it all in one go rather than it being broken up. Mm -hmm. And I think just being realistic, the only way that would have happened is to be sitting in a movie theater with no one able to interrupt me. So, and it would have just been wonderful to like see it on the big screen and, you know, see the, the light and shadows even more. It also really reminded me of Roma. Um, I don't know if everyone or anyone, I know Jeremiah saw that, but if anyone else saw that, um, but just, similarly black and white story of a family um realism slice of life it just really reminded me of that and steven you brought up bicycle thieves apparently that was a big influence on the director um which i thought about a little bit when i was watching it but then i read that after i saw it i was like Mm. oh wow another another one of our movies here Mm -hmm. and alicia Yeah, I mean, same as everybody else. Like I said, it was my first time seeing it. And I agree with what you were saying, Jeremiah. Like I I was really surprised and kind of like sad a little that I had no familiarity with it before because I thought like this should be like a movie that is is known about as much as, you know, like Rashomon or any of the other like classic foreign films that that we hear about all the time. I I really like the slice of life stuff. And besides all the all, all the parallels that everybody already has mentioned, I also thought about Minari, which I loved, um, and the Florida Project, which I loved. Um, so yeah, it's a type of storytelling that I, I really, I get a lot out of. So yeah, I liked it. And for me, yeah, I guess the big difference from last time in 2015, as has been well documented in this episode of the podcast, uh, to this time watching it, uh, was, as Mia alluded to, we have a kid now. And I felt like I was kind of watching it, thinking of her, thinking of our daughter and watching her grow up and just, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, it just struck me in a different way watching this child or these children grow up and go through these things and just have these experiences. And that's something that we're going through with with our daughter and it's just like those little moments where you see them recognize something or just like have an interaction with the world and it's just so meaningful that's what struck me about this movie when i first saw it in 2015 but i felt like i had a deeper connection to it in a way um having gone through the experience of being a parent even though it hasn't been for that long (laughs) it's only we have an eight and a half month old so um, but we've had plenty of like those little moments where it's just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, That's so beautiful, Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Very sweet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, besides that, I think everything that everyone's pointing to about like the cinematography and just like it being a, a nice slice of life uh, for this family. And and I, I do think it's kind of one thing I, I think I noticed probably watching it the first time. Um, but since I was sitting through all in one go, the entire trilogy, it really seemed like the story of Apu to me then, but it's not really. This movie, like, it's kind of funny that that he's the, the sort of main character of the trilogy. I mean, he is the main character of the trilogy, but he's arguably not the main character of this first film. I don't know. It's just like an interesting dynamic with him and the rest of the family and the way the narrative kind of unfolds, I think. But I, I don't know, does anyone want to say anything to that, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you that he isn't the main character. It's This is not something like The 400 Blows that centers right. around um, Jean-Pierre Lode's character. However, what I think happened 
from what little I remember in the trilogy, the remaining two movies that they focus, they became more Truffaut-like yeah. in their focus and in their filmmaking and just the storytelling. So um, I just, th- this film's just such a piece, it's a work of art. Each image, I think, was its own, like, had such weight. It was yeah. really cool. So Alicia said that that this movie should be known by more people, and I totally agree. I do wonder if that's happening now because that that um, Criterion restoration and re-release was in 2015, and just kind of pertinent to the focus of this podcast. I kind of wonder if this film is going to sneak back onto the list or even jump to the top or near the top, just because I, I I've heard this film discussed or mentioned more by critics and people like on film Twitter and things like that um, in recent years. And I think it's just because it's so much more available now. It's on mm-hmm. the Criterion channel. It's on HBO Max. And like I said, it was, used to be hard to find this film or at least a good version of the film to watch as far as I could tell. So I, I really wonder about that. And um, I, like I said, I think it's just pertinent to what this podcast is, is about in the, in the overview. Um, I'm not sure how much it informs our discussion about this particular movie, except that it, it does deserve more recognition. But Alicia, I think you had more you wanted to say. I was just going to say, I, I also like would have had no idea that this movie was supposed to, or that this story was supposed to be about Apu. If I mm-hmm. didn't know that it was a trilogy, if I didn't know that there were two other movies about him after that, I didn't even until I read like a little bit of Wikipedia afterward. I was like, oh, this is a story about the kid. Yeah. I did yeah. not know that. <laughs> Which character does everyone think is the main character if there is one? I'll throw it out there that I, I, I wonder if the sister is the real main character for most of the movie. Obviously, not the entire movie, but um, she seems to be the one who has the greater arc, I think, in terms of where her character goes and seeing her grow and all that than, than Apu. Apu almost seems like a just a, a bystander to so much of it. But Stephen? I think so. Um, just because we're kind of introduced to her first and she just has the most, um, I think, most screen time or, or you just see how she's realized through the eyes of her, her aunt and stealing the fruit and, you know, just having that relationship with her mother before Apu is even born. So... I just feel like she's kind of the focus. And from there, you just kind of follow her along. And she has, I guess, arguably a lot of the drama like that happens throughout the movie. So mm-hmm. I would think that she was the main character. And Mia? Yeah, I agree. I thought that she was the main character. I wonder, because originally they weren't going to make a trilogy. They were just making a movie, right? Then, okay, you can't make any more movies about the sister, obviously. So were they did they just kind of back into it being the Apu trilogy or was that the plan all along? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, one thing that I think would be interesting to dig into, and unfortunately I didn't do it before this discussion is how closely this book and then the wider trilogy adheres to the story of the book it's based on. I wonder how widely that book was known, that source material. And if people going to this movie knew that it is about this kid this, this boy um, and the longer version of the story that maybe they weren't seeing on the screen in this first movie, if that makes sense. Uh, Mia? I think that the book and the movie are fairly different. Mm-hmm. You know, like most books that turn into movies, like there was a lot more characters. I don't think it followed this family quite as closely. I haven't read the book, so this is just what I read on the internet. Um, <laughs> but I think it more followed a lot of people in the village and was more looking at more characters. Um, but there was some other things that were like pretty pivotal things in the movie that are not in the book. So... Um, but I think it was pretty popular. I think people like knew the story. Right. So I kind of thought the mother was the main character because I felt like she's the one that you see her struggle the most. Mm-hmm. Like you do see, obviously, the sisters would is like the for me the next best candidate for the main character. But yeah, her story obviously goes away, um, and you just you more see the effect it has on the mother and the father than um, than even on the brother. So right. for me. Yeah, I, I also thought there's a strong argument for her or for the for those two female characters, the mother and the daughter, to be like the co-leads of the story over Apu. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to kind of go back to someone touched on the neorealist influence. I mean, I think we kind of all have at this point, 
for a lot of us. Um, and I, I thought it was an interesting point that that this might have influenced Truffaut, where Truffaut maybe, well, I guess he probably didn't influence this movie, but I did think that there was an interesting quote from him that he was not interested in this movie. He said something kind of like dismissive about like, why would I want to watch a movie about people eating food with their hands or something, <laughs> oh. which is a shitty quote. It's terrible. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree, Laura, that the second and third movie in the trilogy seem to kind of go off into Truffaut land. I don't think this movie as much is on that kind of path. Like you were saying, it's not like 400 blows. It's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know that it, there isn't something that you could uh, relate it to, but it, it does seem a little more like, it, it's like an interesting case that this guy wasn't a filmmaker before this. Um, and he synthesized seemingly these influences and just kind of made his own thing that sort of stood on its own and then like kind of sent its influences back into the pool of filmmaking or something. Mm -hmm. I always find that interesting, but I, I agree. I think the fact that he, he made something very unique here, even if it is very influenced by neorealism, the Italian movement, Mm -hmm. it sort of stands on its own in, in ways too. Um, I disagree about the main character thing. I don't think there is one. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, too. I, I don't think there's a right answer to that, mm-hmm. personally. But I, I think that there are plenty of movies where there is no real main character. And that might even speak to another influence, that, that um, maybe Jean Renoir was an influence on this movie. Mm. Um, and he's a guy <laughs> that, as we talked about in an episode, uh, just <laughs> Alicia is like not oh. happy to bring this up. Um <laughs> I forgot how much you hated that movie. Don't remind me. No, but um, yeah, I mean, he's he was a filmmaker who juggled a lot of characters in his stories and influenced a slew of directors who did a similar thing. And while this isn't like a giant cast, it it is, as we're sort of pointing out, a movie that, you know, doesn't focus on one character primarily, maybe. And it, it's like there, there are several characters that are that are important, or at least a few. And kind of back to the idea of, of this movie and the influences around it, like just as he was influenced by filmmakers before him, I think he's been a clear influence on filmmakers who've come after him. I think to me, the one that I see similarity with most, other than Truffaut maybe, um, as, as sort of a contemporary of R- Rise, is Richard Linklater, especially Boyhood, I mean, I saw Boyhood like a year before I saw this movie. And then when I saw this movie, like I definitely found myself thinking about Boyhood. So kind of backwards from the the reality of it. But um, then when you take into account the Apu trilogy, like there's kind of a similarity there to the before trilogy of like checking in with these characters at different points in their lives to see like what's up with them and how they're doing. Um, I mean, it's not exactly the same structure, but I, I definitely think that there is a real fascination with how time treats characters and their circumstances that those filmmakers share um, that, that I just find to be interesting as well. Like, that's what I like in Linkletter's work a lot of the time, and it's nice to see it in one of its more... Um, I don't know if original and it's in like a version of its original form before him, something that he probably pulled from Laura, you had something to say. I would name Francis Ford Coppola as I think a director who's been influenced by this movie. And in terms of the um, focus on family Mm. and, and realism. Okay. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's interesting. And, um, and then Obviously, I was just thinking about the Dogma 95 movement in terms of on location. You know, it's obviously not by the, all the tenants, but I think that whole movement could have been born out of something like this and the, the Italian neorealism movement. <clears throat> yeah. And unfortunately, I, was, I think that that's kind of the last quote unquote movement that's been like attempted in, in film at this point. Am I wrong? Maybe. Can I don't know. I think they're the, the rare movement that named themselves for those of us who aren't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Dogma 95 was like Lars von Trier, uh, Thomas Vinterberg. I'm blanking on who else, but this several European directors, I think mostly Danish or uh, at least a couple of them were Danish. 
um, who they decided in 1995 to make a pact that they would make a certain type of movie that would always be on location, use only natural lighting. Uh, I think everything had to be shot on video, um, no makeup. Like basically, you like strip everything down. It's just people in front of cameras doing shit, and uh, it was very limited results. Yeah, results. can you yeah, name the, the, I, one or yeah, two of them? Um, the idiots, I think, is the most known. Or the celebration by Thomas Vinterberg. That's Harmony Korine tried to do um, a dogma movie. Okay. Yeah, which one was his? It was um, kids. Wait, Julian that's Donkey and Boy. Julian Donkey Boy. He that's wrote kids, yeah. but he didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah. I could see this movie being a a an influence on kids too. Yeah. True. I do think that this movie was shot largely in a studio too, though, so it would not have met the Dogma ninety five uh, conventions. Um, I think the nighttime scenes were, but yeah, I, think I think interiors. The rest of it wasn't were shot inside, but still. I would not have thought of the Dogma 95 connection, <laughs> but I could see it. Um, uh, the 90s were big for me. So, Laura, you had kind of a, a question for the whole group that you wanted to guide us into. So do you want to take it from here? Uh, the the question that I have is what would you feel the overriding theme of this film is? It's like a coming-of-age movie, and I think it's like a coming-of-age movie, not just for the little boy, but for like the parents too, especially because the father basically like has his head in the clouds and he's not around. I mean, he's ostensibly like trying to bring home the bacon or something for the family, but we don't really know what he's doing for most of the movie. Um, And he's not there when the daughter passes away. So I think like by the end of the movie, he's had to grow up a little bit and take his take responsibility for the family situation. And then also I think the mother hopefully comes away with a little bit more of like an appreciation for treating people, you know, with some kindness while they're around. (laughs) And uh, I understand she's in a really rough situation. And so that can make you, you know, that can give you a callus, but, um, yeah, hopefully she learned something from the experience too. And also don't neglect your much needed home repairs. That was a big theme for me for this one. It's a good moral of the story. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was just sort of like the end of the innocence or something, if you will, for me. Right. Steven? Since it felt like such a real story to me, it was just a lot of the times when you see movies where it involves like people who are poor or they just don't have a lot of means that their lives are miserable. But for this one, it felt like you, you know, even though they were poor, they, especially the kids, they had regular childhoods and they really enjoyed their lives. Everything wasn't perfect, but they were able to, you know, find joys in everything like candy or necklaces or, you know, listening to the energy in the power lines or seeing a train. It was just really fascinating to me to see something like that and realize that, you know, your, your existence doesn't really define your happiness. In that way, Stephen, it reminded me, I was obsessed with the Little House on the Prairie books when I was a child. I mean, I still am, but you know, it's very much like the small things like kids. Mm -hmm. I don't don't want to say this, but I think in a lot of stories and movies, kids, even when the family is poor, the kids don't seem like they realize they're poor, right? But I think these kids did because they're like, oh, go – she's like, go ask dad for money so we can do this thing. Like no one's asking mom for any money because you know that's not happening. And it's very much like the sisters like to Apu, like you go do it because you'll get this. So anyways, I think I know they know they're poor, but it's not their overriding like state of being. Um, other lessons from this movie – don't uh, play in the rain because it's not going to end well. <laughs> um, although that shot of her like rubbing the water off her face is probably mm. my favorite shot in the entire movie. Mm. I thought it was so perfect. Um, but for me, I think the overriding theme of the film, for me, I don't think this is actually the one of the film, but the thing that like I'll probably take away from this the most is this film and these people exist in such a patriarchal society which I just I totally get like that's how things were that's how things are 
the dad is the one that has to go out and make the money and there's only so much that the mom can do and the son is treated so much better than the daughter like in every single situation basically but like it's the women who are in this village who have to get things done and like the mom is just trying to hold everyone together and feed the kids and you know take care of this aunt even if she doesn't really want to, but like she's there and she has to do it. And like the scenes of her selling her or pulling out her wedding stuff to go and sell it were just like so heartbreaking to me because I just, this is, you know, the little bit of nice stuff you have in the world. And I'm sure it would have been intended for like her daughter's dowry one day, but instead like you need to sell it to buy like not even that much rice when she's pouring it into the container after she goes out with the first round of dishes. It was just like, oh man, like y'all, you're three people. Y'all are going to eat that in like a couple days. Like this is not enough. Um, So just to me, it was like women somehow finding the way to like survive and figure things out, even though it's this very much like male dominated society. And meanwhile, the husband is just off like (laughs) doing God knows what, but I don't know what. I was not very impressed with his character personally (laughs) (laughs) me neither i don't know if this is a theme and i feel like i'm just echoing what some other people have said but i guess my big takeaway from the movie is you have to appreciate small things um because that seems to be where any joy in the movie comes from um like the kids when they can have their little moments to just like discover a thing or witness something happening in the world um it's just very powerful little moments that are captured perfectly and very subtly. And even I think the auntie in her way kind of portrays that as well. She's just like trying to find a place to be comfortable <laughs> so she could just like in a shawl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She, she's not asking for much, but she's also asking for too much <laughs> according to her uh, family or, you know, the mother of the family. I don't know. To me, that's just the big takeaway is you have to appreciate small things. I really love these answers. I wanted to raise kind of, not to be a contrarian, but I felt that this film didn't have, it may have had some messages or moments, but it was so realistic and focused on the realism that in and of itself took away the themes. So you're saying it's themeless? I, I yeah, on a level, yeah. That it's well, it's, I would. It's character driven, realistic film. I would maybe argue that it it fits in a different way. Stephen's term from the persona discussion of it being a Rorschach test film. Of it, it's like you just can project onto it, you know, your own themes. Yeah, it, it's not trying to throw any in your face necessarily. Touche, Jeremiah. do you think that sort of like there's so many characters in this movie there's so many themes it seems like there's no theme kind of yeah i mean the only thing that i the theme that i was going to think of is how how people react in extreme poverty how it brings out things in you that you don't you know like the mother just throwing the aunt auntie away right before she's about to die and like, um, you know, Jorga stealing, you know, just and and the dad just completely not facing reality, sort of a la bicycle thieves and, and just not manning up in any way, you know. And so I, that was something I was juggling with. But then I, I, I kept coming back to the idea that maybe no theme is the theme of this film. It's just life. It's, it's just a bunch of stuff hard, happening. Man. Just fucking all get just on happens. with his shit. There's the theme. Yeah, so. It's life. Know. That's the theme. The theme is life. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. I, I thought I kind of thought that too when I when we when we got the question beforehand, I was like, well, it's hard sometimes it's hard to find like a specific theme in like a slice of life movie because mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. lives don't always have themes. Um but yeah, but I think there's just I think there's a lot of themes and like no theme. So I think you're right, Jeremiah and Stephen, just just to say like it is, it's like, it's sort of what you take from it for each person. But um, right. I also thought about like modernity and I kind of, it kind of contrasted to me a little bit with Tokyo Story. I don't know, maybe this is like a new topic, but um, like in this one, I felt they had to kind of 
toss off their old way of life and leave and go embrace modernity in order to be successful. And Mm -hmm. in Tokyo's story, it was like, isn't it a shame that we have this modern life (laughs) that keeps us, you know, separated from each other? And, you know, so I just I thought that was an interesting like parallel for me. I was like kind of not sure which one I felt more strong, you know, like not sure which one I agreed with more. Right. Well, does anybody have anything else to add? Um, I did want to ask that question about um, just because, you know, spoiler alert, Durga stole a necklace of her friends, but she denied taking it throughout the whole movie. You think that she didn't take it. But then at the end of the movie, when they're moving, Apu finds the necklace and then throws it in the water. So I did wonder, did that color your opinion of her at all? Because I completely believe that she didn't take the necklace. Um, just by the way that she acted. But then when you find that out at the end, you're sort of like, wait a minute, I can't believe that she actually did that. So I was just curious what everybody thought about that. I thought it was badass and she was a really good liar. (laughs) 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 Impressed by her, her lying capability. (laughs) It didn't really color my view of her, except that it made me just think she was more complicated than even the movie lets on, even though she is sort of the most complicated character in the first place, I think. Um, so I, I just thought it deepened her character because there was something that she was kind of hiding from us and everybody, and that's always going to make you think someone's got a little more going on than you see on the surface, you know? What did everybody think about uh, Apu's reaction to that, of throwing it into the water? I just thought that scene was also really powerful because of the way that it dropped in there and it sort of like sucked it up into the water so Mm -hmm. i I was curious what everybody thought of that as well at that point i was crying so much Um, (laughs) that it was a beautiful shot i just thought the whole thing was really just sad and sweet like i mean i i wasn't sure either way whether she took the necklace i was like i could totally have seen her taking the necklace not not because i thought she was like you know malicious or anything but just because she could she didn't have anything like that and she had that little toy box where she kept her little treasures and she clearly was like a dreamy type of person and she wasn't above stealing fruit so like I just thought yeah she could have totally taken it but I could have also seen her you know having not taken it too so I wasn't super like surprised I thought it was just sad and it kind of just summed up to me like this poor little girl that had dream, you know, like had dreams of a life and, and it just, you know, she, she, you know, it didn't happen for her. And so that was sort of his, for me, when he threw it in the pond, that was like his last way of saying like, goodbye to this way of life. And like, you know, I thought it was also sort of him recognizing that family is more important than other things that he's like valuing his relationship with and with his sister and her reputation, essentially, mm-hmm. over, you know, setting something right in sort of like a moral or legal sense or something of like revealing the crime or something to yeah. the the uh, person that was stolen from or the people who accused her of lying. I yeah. like that you're looking at it that yeah. way. So I'm going to look at it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I thought, too. Like, he obviously, like, looked up to his sister so much and I think he could just see finding it and just having the reaction of like I can't let my parents see this because they're already so sad about losing her and then it's just going to open up this whole hurt nothing good is going to come from like anyone knowing that she took the necklace like it's just better to like hide it no one's going to find it um it was a beautiful shot what I thought was interesting too is that she so she takes this necklace which I think is like a young poor girl whose friend has something nice like totally get it you know like not surprised she took it but she could never wear it she could never let anyone know Mm -hmm. she has it right because everyone's gonna know her mom's gonna know immediately like anyone Mm -hmm. in the village is gonna know and clearly you know she didn't have it in her jewelry box even I assume this is like some time after the uh, you know, after the necklace was initially taken and everything, it's hidden in some 
dusty little bowl way up on a top shelf. Um, so, you know, she knew, okay, I can't even put it somewhere where like I can see it really often. So I just thought it was interesting that like she, she knows she has it. It's like this little secret that she has or like this little bit of finery that maybe she's able to pull out every once in a while and hold or look at or even just think about it. Um, and I was going to say too earlier, this movie reminded me of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, if anyone ever read that book when you were younger. Also just kind of like slice of life, Brooklyn, poverty. And I remember one of the things from it, they're they're really poor, but like the mom lets them have a cup of coffee every day. Mm -hmm. Even though the kids don't drink it, they end up pouring it down the sink every day. And their aunt is like, this is nuts. Like, why do you give them coffee every day? This is so wasteful. And she's like, even though we're poor, they should have something that they don't have to finish that they can just throw away and like it builds like this sense in them of like not everything has to be like grasped so tightly so maybe this was her coffee in a way too i like that i mean i think a lot of what we're pointing to just kind of shows how this movie is so universal in whatever its themes are or are not like it's just (laughs) like it, it it's a very simple story that you don't have to be from uh, their region in India to understand their life. It's like portraying it in such as uh, a clear way that you can like see parallels with either things in your own life or other works of art, like, uh, like a tree grows in Brooklyn or other movies or anything. Like it, it's just like, I, I, that's, that's one of the things I appreciate, but appreciate about this movie and other movies like this that have become classics that they're just sort of like, this sounds cliche, I know, but like they, they show us that everybody's sort of a little bit alike, no matter where they are and who they are. Um, but this is like one of the best versions of that being illustrated to my mind. So those are our thoughts on Panther Panchali, and we will share our final thoughts on the movie and answer a bonus question after this break. So we're back, and now we're going to answer the question, what was your favorite scene or moment or element of the movie? So it could just be like the way something looked, the way something sounded. It could be a whole scene, whatever. And uh, Laura, do you want to start us off? Sure. I There's so much beauty, and there's so much like crisp visual, like just magic. I knew I was in for something special when Durga looks into the big outside pot and then the shot from below takes her like she it shoots up above and then she starts pulling kittens out of it that (laughs) that shot was just so awesome and i that and that was the first time i was like wow and 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 i think it just it didn't disappoint there were so many but that that stuck out as i was like oh this is beautiful pay attention Laura. <laughs> and Steven, how about you? I really enjoyed a lot of the outdoor scenes where you could see wide shots. And I think there's a scene um, where they were pulling the cow through the field, which I really loved. And then also I did like the part where Durga went where they were under the power lines and you could hear it getting louder and then her putting her ear against that. I just loved that for some reason. Alicia? Yeah, I was also thinking of the like power line scene. That was probably my favorite scene. Um, I also really liked the music. So I think that was my, those are my two favorite things. And Mia. I was also going to talk about the music for a second. Um, so it was by Ravi Shankar who, you know, did a ton of stuff with the Beatles and was a huge influence on George Harrison. So I thought that was really interesting. And he wrote a lot of the music, but also like remade a lot of classical songs for this um which i thought was really cool and apparently he recorded most of the music in like a just an 11 hour non-stop marathon stretch so mm. that was cool too um but i also already talked about the scene of um uh the sister with the water on her face when she's in the monsoon i thought that was so beautiful uh i'm gonna answer this kind of two ways i th- the things i remembered from the first viewing like visually were well, the thing I did remember was like the, how expressive that boy's eyes are. Like there are shots where his eyes are just like almost like glowing in a way. 
Um, they're so big and, and expressive. So I really remembered that. I remembered the wonder about the train that, that the two kids have, how it's like this symbol of something. But the thing that like really stuck out to me this time that I really took note of was the shots before the heavy rain that are just these long shots of like insects buzzing around uh, the top of the water and the, these plants sticking out. They're very um, poetic shots, like this mirrored image of these plants sticking out of the water. And you're just kind of hanging on these shots. And we're already in a movie that is sort of meandering in a good way, but like the, the movie kind of comes to a stop and makes you just be like, what is happening? Um, Cause these shots are just like long. And then you realize that maybe the most important thing in the movie is happening. So it's sort of like a roadmap to that or a road sign, I should say to like, this is, you need to pay attention. Uh, this something's about to happen that, that is going to change the course of the movie and these people's lives. And that was just something that struck me this time, like I said. Um, so that's what I wanted to call out. Our next question, has the movie, as far as your concerns, stood the test of time or another way of framing it? Do you think it resonates today? Alicia, do you want to start us off this time? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think I've already sort of spoken to it. I, I Like I mm -hmm. said, I really think, I really wish it was more well-known and hopefully that it, it will be. I definitely think it's still resonates and I mean obviously it's taking place in a different country in a different culture from anything that I you know I'm super familiar with but I still identified with it a lot and so I yeah I definitely think it still resonates yeah Mia yes definitely um very resonant today I think just the fact that <clears throat> the number of movies and books that we all mentioned that either influenced this or reminded us of this or this movie influenced and you know movies that were set in Mexico and Denmark and Texas and all over the place um Florida um so yeah definitely <laughs> the great country all the hot of Florida spots. yeah exactly that strange <laughs> culture I know <laughs> well, very disparate cultures mm -hmm. um shall we say um I was curious, does Jeremiah or anyone, do you know, are the other two movies also on HBO Max? I think or they are. Available or Criterion? I think they are. You can rent them. Cool. Okay. If they're yeah, not, I would I, like to see them. I would go with what David said. I didn't look specifically, but I would assume they would be because I think that they were part of the same. Yeah. Um, you know, master. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it was suggested when I did watch that movie, the other two were there, right. like under it. Thanks, Stephen. Um, and then Stephen. Um, I do think it stood the test of time um, just seeing the movie because of the themes and then also just because of how beautifully it looked. I mean, even if you, you know, the story is universal, but then also just looking at how it was shot and, and how beautiful it is. I think I did see or I, I read something about how they had to remaster it. And maybe that's why we haven't seen a whole lot of it, just because there wasn't a clean version yeah. for people to really see and appreciate it film festivals like what Jeremiah had seen. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I just think the themes are universal. And so I think anybody could get anything out of it. Laura? Absolutely. It's said it was such a fresh um, joy to watch. Yeah, I think this is one of those times that this question almost seems redundant yeah. to ask because I feel like that's all we've been saying for the whole episode. Yeah. Anyway. But, <laughs> but, but I think it's true. I, I, I think for all the reasons you all were saying, and I'll, I'll just point back to what I said earlier in the episode, that I think that this movie has been probably getting more attention in recent years because of that 2015 uh, re-release slash restoration. And I do wonder if that's just going to continue, especially as we go into the new sight and sound poll coming out that I know I've, I've seen stuff online that uh, critics have started sending in their ballots for that. And I think it's, I think we said on a previous episode, I don't know if we said it on the episode, but I think we talked about it at least that uh, we're expecting to hear what the 2022 list is going to be, I think in November. Um, but I would not be surprised at all if this movie creeps into the list, like I said. Um, and I, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here and just throw out something else I was thinking of today that relates to a movie that was mentioned earlier. I think there's a good chance Tokyo Story is going to top the list. 
Top oh, the list? Oh, boy. Yeah. I do. Th- I, I, that's that's my, yeah, I think so. Because huh. I've, I've been Oof. seeing a lot more discussion of that movie online. I feel online like you just threw critics. down some sort of gauntlet. I know. Boom. Thinking tale. That was at the top of my list so far of the movies we've watched for the I mean, I I ended up putting Hiroshima Monomore above it after watching mm-hmm. that, but Tokyo Story was my number one up until that point. So I'm not saying I would be mad at Tokyo Story being number one. I'm not saying <laughs> that that's my choice either though. Like I I just think that there's a good chance that critics are gonna pick it as the number one movie. And it, okay. I got it. Now, I'm just going to have to think about mine and come back to you on that one. Sure. Anyway. November, between the elections, the midterms. We need a betting Yeah, we need like two parallel betting pools. Yeah. It's just going to turn into a gambling podcast. I need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll just add that. Well, Laura. Yeah. So I wanted to just ask, I mean, this wasn't to shame anyone, but I was just curious you know, I think it's a part of the world with a huge filmmaking, um, you know, industry. And obviously, Sight and Sound doesn't really pay attention to it. And I I just started, I was just curious what filmmakers, Indian film, films by Indian filmmakers you'd want to just give a shout out to at this point. And I'll start with... Um, a contemporary movie that I watched. Everybody says I'm fine. It's from 2001, and it's this wild movie um, about a hairstylist who can read minds. And mm. it's a it's a really cool Indian film. It's kind of creepy. I unfortunately don't have one, and and that is probably a a blind spot that I have in that I also don't see a whole lot of movies to begin with. But I'm definitely open to seeing more. And if people have any recommendations, I would love to see more. And I might actually watch the trilogy now that I've watched this one movie. Yeah, similar to Steven, I, I this is like a blind spot for me and I feel bad about that. <laughs> but um, I, I know we sort of said that we can bring in like English language Indian films too. So I don't know. I was thinking maybe like, I don't even know if this qualifies, but like, Gandhi. I really like the movie Gandhi. <laughs> Just I'm not sure who directed Gandhi. No, but I Attenborough. Attenborough. Richard Attenborough. But mm-hmm. I think it, it. I think it was like a joint. Um, yeah, they might have financed it. Yeah, helped finance it. Or any I'm of the sure. like Merchant Ivory. Like technically, I think one of them mm. was Indian as well. So like that's my. I mean, I I don't have anything better really to, than to suggest like a British Indian film or an American Indian film. I I just don't have the knowledge but like steven said i hopefully i can rectify that this definitely was a wonderful movie that we just watched so it definitely made me want to you know dive in more right mia yeah kind of the same as steven and alicia also a blind spot for me um but now i really want to watch rewatch the second of these and watch the third and I'm sure there's a lot of other good movies out there by Indian directors that deserve more attention from myself and others. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm basically in the same boat. I've seen this trilogy, and I know I've seen movies by, like, English-language movies that are by directors of Indian descent. Uh, But I would recommend watching the rest of this trilogy. I do think that this is the best of the three, but I definitely think it's worth watching the other two. So this was our last episode of this round of of the podcast. And so our next one is going to be where we pick our next round. And we might, maybe we'll talk about some of the movies we've watched recently. Maybe we won't. We'll see. But uh, <laughs> we're definitely going to pick our next round of movies. And maybe we'll have some surprises for you. Like I said, we'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's all we got right now. So that's it for this episode of the Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Movie Club. And like I said in the last episode, I feel like we're, we're making more concerted effort to uh, post more there and like tr- try to like get more conversations going about other movies, not just what we're talking about on the podcast. The, the group is supposed to be about movies broadly, not just this show. Um, so we want it to be for that for anybody who wants to take part. Um, we encourage that. And you can email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com 
feel free to ask questions in the comments, uh, rip us a new one, whatever you want to do. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.